few weeks ago, I spoke about my flight in the MiG-25 in um, Russia, and uh, a lot of people seem to like that one, so I thought I'd share another flying story or a flying experience. So I decided to learn to fly back in uh, 91, and um, mostly because it was something I'd always wanted to do, but always found good reasons not to do it. It wasn't particularly practical, um, it was quite expensive, but in the end, I just decided to have a go <laughs> and uh, learn. So I certainly met some crazy people while I was flying. So originally I learned to fly in the UK, but the problem with the UK is th the weather wasn't great. So quite often lessons would be cancelled. In fact, one was even cancelled on a fine sunny day, but it was so warm that we didn't have a clear horizon. And that made um, certainly student flying problematic from where I was flying, which was out of uh, Leavesden, where the... Uh, the film studios are, I think, next to uh, these days. Uh, in fact, one story I will relate to Leavesden, because uh, I guess there's quite a lot of stories about that. Uh, one day I was, um, we'd been out flying and I had to drive the aeroplane round to where the petrol bowsers were because uh, we were low on fuel and uh, I needed to just go fill up. And that meant driving, taxiing basically uh, around in front of one of the hangars. And as I looked up at the hang hangar, uh, the doors were slightly open. I could see a Spitfire there, which was a bit of a surprise. And um, I very nearly took out the Bowser with my wing because I was looking in the wrong place. But anyway, that's another um, story. However, I did decide to basically take a month off and go to the United States to fly because the weather was more stable. This was in Virginia. And basically, if you, if you don't know anything about learning to fly, you have to accumulate a certain number of hours. So at the time I was flying, it was a minimum of 20 um, hours in the air with um, uh, a teacher and then another 20 solo. And you had to do that within a period of six months or else it didn't count. So because getting and, and because I was doing this I was working full-time I'd hop along at the weekends and go but it really wasn't working out too well so I managed to negotiate a month off work where I was working and um, go over to the US now that didn't quite <laughs> didn't quite go as planned because um, I was flying out on a Saturday morning and um, the people who've been organizing it for me, they, they were giving me some advice on visas. This was a UK company based down in Kent, as I remember. And they were a little bit vague on the visas. So they told me just to get a tourist visa. And if anybody asked immigration, just to say I was doing recreational flying and leave it at that. So um, anyway, off I go on this Saturday morning um, and um, get my flight. I get into... Uh, Philadelphia was where I was flying to and then I had another flight down to uh, Virginia to Newport News and when I got to immigration this person asked me this lady asked me what I was there for and I said I'll look a bit of recreational flying and I might try some diving as well and she was looking at my visa and in the end she sort of wandered off with it and, and to cut a long story short they decided I was on the wrong visa and I could get a student exchange visa, but the flying school wasn't in the program. And then I would need to get a J1 working visa, which could take months. So basically I got held overnight <laughs> with a security guard um, called Randy who kept showing me where he'd been shot through the hand. And um, an Indian guy who was on a 
the forged visa, they'd caught him. And then I was put on a flight back to London the following day. So that didn't go very well. So basically on the Monday morning, I'm fighting my way back through the tube traffic in London because I've just sort of done this silly boomerang trip through um, to, to the States. So anyway, um, I decided having, it wasn't easy getting this time off. So I thought, I'll oh, stuff it, I'll give it another go. So I rebooked my flights. I told people what was happening, the, the people who'd organized the trip and also the flying school. And um, knowing that if I got caught out again at the US, I probably wouldn't be allowed in again ever. And um, flew back out. And I was really nervous the whole time, you know, all the way across the Atlantic, seven, eight hours, whatever it was. And um, finally got into Washington. And this chap at immigration, if you've ever been, or certainly where it used to be, because I haven't been to the US for quite a few years now, there's just a lot of different immigration desks and you kind of pick one and go. And I found this guy who I was, you know, he was, I noticed he was giving everybody a, a bit of a hard time. And uh, I ended up getting him. I think there was a choice of desk, but I ended up with this guy. And he started asking me what I was there for. And I said, I'm just there on holiday for a few weeks. And uh, how much money have I got? About $1,000. And uh, what's the weather like in London? So <laughs> I thought, great, let's talk about you. I ended up chatting to him and he never checked properly that I'd been thrown out a few days earlier or been asked to leave a few days earlier. Now, I will say that subsequently I went back to the American embassy in London. This was a bit later. I got I got a job in an American company because I got pulled up again. I went to Miami to do some diving a couple of years later and got hauled off by immigration. So I know that I was on the system. In fact, I was told I was on the system as um, an undesirable alien. So I uh, feel quite proud of that, actually. Um, but I, I did go to the US Embassy in London and they basically said, look, you should never have been refused entry. You never misrepresented yourself, blah, 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 blah. So it should have been all good. Anyway, I, on the way over on this second flight, I'd been chatting to this elderly lady next to me and didn't say anything about what I was doing. I just didn't want to leave any opportunity for things to screw up and um, met her at the baggage claim and started chatting to her and she asked, what I was doing because it was early evening uh, it was about seven eight o'clock I think and I said well look I've got to get down to Newport News in Virginia but I haven't actually sorted anything out I thought I might just try and get a train and she had she was English originally and she'd married an American guy at the end of the second world war and moved to America so she said to me well look trains aren't like the UK here so you probably can't get anything but my son and daughter-in-law whichever way around it was are picking me up and why don't you come back with us and then we'll sort you out so that you know it's absolutely lovely they picked me up went back to their home um found there was a greyhound bus down to um, raleigh i think down in um virginia and then i had to get something else another bus to newport news and uh, they were absolutely lovely and we, we did stay in touch after that uh for, for a while at least and uh, you know exchanged uh, christmas cards that kind of thing so um yeah six o'clock the following morning the 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 son or son-in-law dropped me off at the Greyhound station. I got on the bus and it's full of people, all big, <laughs> aggressive, looking like, okay, I'm in real trouble here. But anyway, it was all good. And I got down to uh, the flying school. And the one funny thing about it was I, I tried phoning the flying school from her place and um, got the answering machine because it was late. So it was the usual, uh, we're not here, but leave a message and blah, 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 <clears throat> And at the end of it, it said, well, and if this is Graham Elliott calling, we'll pick you up <laughs> or whatever the time was. So they had actually uh, thought about me. 
So anyway, getting down to the actual flying part of it, and I also love doing photography. Um, I, I got my student hours up and I did my solo and I did a few solo cross countries, but the problem was with the delay because I didn't, having planned to start on the Monday, I didn't actually get there until Thursday lunchtime and I was up in the air that Thursday afternoon, but it did mean that I'd lost the best part of a week. So it's very difficult to try and catch up with the hours and I did my best. But what kind of snookered me in the end was that when I had started, when I was ready to do my first solo, we started to get strong winds, and um, uh, th- that was it. They at one stage they even banned solo student fly- uh, flights. So in the end, I didn't get anywhere close to my twenty hours. Uh, I did have some interesting experiences though. So um, I, I guess I'll talk about getting the. Uh, first solo because we were going for my first solo flight and um it it was very very windy though a lot of the time and this uh, instructor took me out to um this forest area that part of the country is absolutely beautiful stunning in november the trees are all good leaves are turning red it's just and the gold it's absolutely beautiful so we went out to this um country area and there was a a strip a landing strip kind of cut out of the forest so it was amongst trees which was fine except that on approach so I'm doing a directing approach to land and I've got a strong side wind from my left so what you do in an airplane is you steer slightly into the side wind and that means that you're um, basically flying horizontal you know you know in a straight line along the ground so I'm going to hit the runway but I'm actually flying in a diagonal at a kind of odd angle in the air because I'm flying through a moving medium, basically. So that was all good until I dropped down below the height of the trees. And then all of a sudden, I was getting hit from the other side and, uh, and the wind was trying to flip my aeroplane over. And what was happening was the wind was coming across, hitting the trees on the right-hand side, kind of curling down towards the ground and then back up again. And that was coming under my wing. So... It was kind of interesting getting down there. I really had to get it down on the ground one wheel at a time. And we were just doing a touch and go because my instructor wanted to see how bad it was. And we got up in the air again. He tried a landing and, in my opinion, was worse than mine. (laughs) But that might just be me talking. Uh, So that was that, really. We had to abandon that one because he didn't really want me killing myself. And I guess that wasn't the ideal. So uh, eventually I did it a day or two later. But like I say, that kind of impacted on the... uh, the solo flying and the, the funniest thing I remember is phoning my mother so I'd done my first solo flight and she asked me who else was in the airplane and I said well I was on my own because that's sort of what it means and uh, I don't think she was too, imp- too, too impressed that her eldest son was flying in an airplane on his own um, anyway so after that I managed to do some cross countries and um, near Newport News Newport News is uh, near the Norfolk Navy Yard so it's a sort of one of these big facilities that US Navy has. And close to Norfolk, it, there's the York River Bridge, first of all, which is a big landmark when you're flying, but there's also the, what they call the Mothball Navy. So all of these destroyers and other ships that aren't in currently in service but are there ready to be put back into service are all moored up. Now, I have no idea. And, you know, maybe there were 30 or so ships there, but a lot of ships to be flying over. But this became one of the uh, the waypoints, one of the, the visual markers that we would have, the York River Bridge was another one, when we were flying south of uh, Newport News. And I was flying in, I was mainly flying Cessna 150s and 152s, which are 
uh, small high-winged uh, aeroplanes. You'll have seen them because they're on lots of movies and things. They're a very common aeroplane. And um, but the high wing is great for taking photographs because it's not in your way. In England, I used to fly um, Piper um, Tomahawks, which had a low wing. So while it felt like you were in a, you could imagine you were flying a Spitfire, <laughs> um, it, it was not very good for photography. So I ended up taking quite a lot of photographs of um, where I was heading because you obviously get a fairly unique perspective when you're in the air and. Um, Certainly getting things like the York River Bridge and um, the Mothball Navy were, were kind of, you know, kind of key waypoints. One of the interesting things I'll just share with you on the um, the charts they give you, because for flying you have your own charts, and they show you different um, things to look out for. Because when one of the things that confuses people, when you're in the air, things look much closer than you expect. So you might see a town a little way in the distance, but you might not realize it's actually one that you think is much further away. But up in the air, they, they, things look, tend to look much closer. And one thing I did like about the American charts, because I did do a little bit of night flying, was that around each town, the town itself is in yellow, and um, there's a dark kind of line around this yellow area and what that is that's the shape of the town at night with the lighting it currently has so um that was that was you know a pretty handy thing and uh, i did fly up to washington with um, an instructor on, on one of the occasions when it was solo flying was banned and it was really rough flying up there we were hitting pockets of turbulence um quite frequently we'd you know you hit a it was like driving a Land Rover over a muddy field, if you can imagine that, where you're, you, the yoke that you're holding is like the steering wheel is getting jerked out of your hands a lot. You're kind of holding on to it, trying to keep the aircraft pretty much level. And then all of a sudden you'd hit something, you drop 50 feet or you drop 100 feet. So you're just bouncing around the whole time. Whereas coming back, we came back at night and it was almost surreal. It was like, it was almost like we were sitting in a hangar that was completely dark, and we're just sitting in the aeroplane. We got the noise of the engine, but every but it was completely smooth. It was like we weren't moving. We've just got this. We could see other, you know, the stars. We could see all the all the towns and things laid out below us. Other aircraft flying around, but it was like that was all projected onto this imaginary hangar. It was just quite surreal because it was so flat. Um, particularly after the journey up, because we flew, this was uh, I'd flown up to Washington uh, to look at the Smithsonian with this instructor I had, and um, flying back down was just amazing. So um, I do recommend that if you get the chance flying something small at night, and hopefully it's not you know if you get get those really still conditions, they're absolutely stunning. So and unfortunately I didn't take any photographs of that, but uh, it's certainly on my own. I used to I used to quite get quite relaxed um, flying on my own. I'll just write a couple of instances just because I'm telling flying stories. Uh, on one occasion, um, I was doing a cross-country to this quite remote little airfield. And what you do, you the, the way you use your radio, because you can't tell, you can hear a lot of radio chatter in your headphones, but you can't tell where anything's coming from because it's all the same volumes. So you don't know how far away people are. So what you do when you're coming to a town, when you're about, I think it was 10 miles out, initially you start making contact with the tower we didn't i didn't know i wasn't 100 percent sure if this tower if this little airfield had a control tower on it or not like somebody just controlling the traffic because it was so small so what you do is you radio in your whole call sign so in the u.s the the letter is n it's the, the num letters and numbers you see on the tail of an aircraft that's their call sign 
And the way you do it is that you read your complete call sign until you get an acknowledgement from somebody on the ground. And then you just use the three last digits because it just keeps things cleaner. So um, I was flying in. I'm, I'm reading out my call sign. Nobody's coming back to me or not that I can hear. So um thought, okay. And by then I'd got to the airfield. You know, I'd been calling for a few minutes. I'd reached the airfield. And what you then do is you fly at 1,000 feet perpendicular to the runway. So that means that anybody who's in a circuit, they're going to be um, below 1,000 feet where you're flying. So you basically go across the runway at 1,000 feet. And what you're looking for is the windsock because you're looking at what direction the wind is coming from. Uh, because you always take off and land into the wind because you into the wind because um, that keeps your takeoff short, your landing short because you've um, um, you know, you've got got the advantage of, the, of flying into wind. It sort of slows you down on the way in. So um, anyway, I looked down at the windsock and it's just hanging there, completely limp. So um, no wind at all. So I just kind of had to pick a direction. So I took a choice and um, started flying around to uh, come in for landing and I'd um so I'd gone perpendicular to the runway I, I turned I know I turned right so I'm now running parallel to the runway to the end of it I went beyond the runway so that if I look back over my shoulder 45 degrees that's the point the turning point that's where that line intersects when you hit that intersect that 45 degree angle from the end of the runway that's where you turn and go on your um base leg and then you come into your final all the time you're dropping your altitude as I was going on my base leg, just something glinted. I could see off in the distance at the far end of the runway. So I thought, okay, I'm, I'm just going to abort this. So I flew back up again to a thousand and um, didn't do my base leg, just basically then turned and flew parallel to the runway. And I could then see another aircraft landing, but going in the opposite direction to the one I had chosen. So I hadn't seen this guy. I hadn't heard him. And uh, anyway, I, so that I then changed direction and went in the same direction he'd gone, went in and landed. And when I got down onto the ground, there was this woman there who was supposedly controlling traffic, but I'd never heard her. And she hadn't, I certainly had not heard my call sign in full. And um, she just said to me, well, I was hoping one of you guys would figure it out because the guy turned out to be from the same flying school as me. So anyway, that's another flying story. Um, I've, I've been yakking for a bit. I'll, I'll tell her, maybe come on again and uh, do a part two on uh, Graham's flying adventures in the US, but um, ignoring the immigration stuff. But yeah, you know, the, the flying's kind of fun. If you want to, my, my suggestion to you, if there's anything you really want to have a go at, even if it seems completely impractical and ridiculous, it's probably, I would recommend having a go at it anyway, because you never know, it might take summer, it might not, not but um, at least then you've done it and it can be quite fun doing these things and uh, you get all sorts of interesting experiences. So that's pretty much it from me for this part one of um, Graham <laughs> Graham's flying adventures and I'll, uh, I'll record another um, podcast with part two. So whatever you're doing, I hope you're having fun and uh, don't forget to take pictures. Bye for now. Just before I go, I wanted to let you know that there's a couple of ways you can support me if you feel so inclined. Uh, with the podcast, Buzzsprout, which is the um, the platform I use for with my podcast, they have a subscription model. So if you feel that you would like to subscribe, a few dollars, a few euros, whatever, um, to the podcast, that would be much appreciated. The other option is my Patreon membership. So if you'd like to become a patron, and that starts 
at the price of a cup of coffee every month. You'll get access to exclusive material, behind-the-scenes material, photography tips, all this kind of stuff, depending on which tier you're at. So there is some information available through my website and um, also on the, uh, uh, the written text to go with this podcast. So if you choose either one, thank you so much in advance. And whether or not you do, I hope you uh, continue to enjoy the podcast and let other people know about them. Thank you very much. Bye for now.